Welcome to another episode with the Market Dominance Guys, a program about the innovators, idealists, and the entrepreneurs who thrive and die in the high-stakes world of building a startup company. We explore in the cookbooks, guidebooks, and magic beans needed to grow your business. This week, our market dominance guys, Chris Beal and Corey Frank, are into part two of their three-part conversation with Henry Wodala, founder and principal of Real Source Group. And what a conversation it is. Chris was surprised to discover that Henry had binge listened to every market dominance guys podcast in one weekend. You might wonder why the rush until you hear the questions Henry was wrestling with while attempting to fine tune his business. How can I systemize what I'm doing? How can I maximize the efficacy of the sales practitioner? How can we create systems that are somehow universal? Right here on Market Dominance, guys, Henry found what he was looking for. One answer came from Chris's advice about what you lead with when you are that invisible stranger calling a prospect. Do you immediately trot out your company's value? Or do you attempt to establish trust first? Henry confesses, I was obsessed with the idea of leading with value. He says his approach was data-driven, data-forward. But as Chris has repeated on his discussions with other guests, trust always has to proceed presenting your value. Henry is a true believer now in establishing trust first and restates it this way. You create trust by essentially alleviating the pain of who you are as the attacking entity. Join Henry, Corey, and Chris as they explore more about calming a prospect's fear of cold callers on today's Market Dominance Guys episode, Lead That Cold Call with Trust, Not Value. Well, we talk a lot about there's only really three things you can do in business. You know, from a strategy perspective, you can do something with your current situation and move it from a position to a better position. You can see who you have together as team members or board members or capital and do something different with those people. Or it sounds like what you've done clearly is take what you have and make it run better, faster, cheaper, which has expanded the bottleneck in some way with your ability to kind of replicate in this Iron Man concept that, mm-hmm. that talks about. I think that's an interesting way to parse that earlier question. And to your point, 100%. I think I've been absolutely obsessed with figuring out what are best practices and putting best practices on top of each other in a way that's cohesive. I mean, you can't just apply maybe one system that doesn't necessarily align with another, but we've been very judicious in the way we look at things. I'd say from a business perspective, if I was going to really simplify it, one of my theories I'm trying to play out over a period of years is how can I shift from OPEX to CAPEX or operating expenses to capital expenses? And the way I'm doing that is by really heavily investing in systems, which can both be literal systems in terms of technological systems, but also systems of practice and systematizing the way in which I operate. And I think one of the things I'm really keenly desirous to prove out here in the coming years, and I think with Chris, it's going to be a very interesting ride here over the next 12 to 18 months with Connect and Sell is how can we really maximize the efficacy of the sales practitioner? And to your point earlier, Corey, about the way to apply and readapt business models into other either industries or other ways, that's something too that we've, I've kind of been always cognizant of in the back of my mind that we could templatize this approach. It's on the one hand, you're hearing me talk very, very specifically about the dynamics and the realities of the TAM that I focus on, 
but the systems in which we get there are largely replicable to entirely different industries or sectors. Sure. Certainly to industries. When you dominate and as you continue to dominate the medical space for the asset class for, for real estate to regards to medical buildings, again, this is part of what you do in your business, but are there designs the same template can be applied to other kind of broader types of commercial real estate as well, correct? Absolutely. I mean, in, in many ways, I mean, there's a broader theoretical discussion. In fact, I think Chris has, has been opining on that just recently on LinkedIn, but we've had some conversations about other property types and we've been picking particularly on commercial office. That That's a different topic for probably a different podcast. <laughs> but, um, yeah. Suffice to say, yes, it absolutely can be applied to different industries. And that's been something that, a bit, like I said earlier, I'm cognizant about. How can we create systems that are really somewhat universal in their nature. And one of the things that's that's been floating around the back of my mind is wouldn't it be interesting to not just harvest the physical assets, the physical real estate, the bricks and mortar, but actually go up and acquire these local and regional ownership groups at, at the corporate level, because then you can actually get some of the other services that you need to really operate a portfolio of assets, things like asset management, property management, leasing, these are terms obviously in our world, but you could go out and harvest companies in the exact same strategy that we're doing it. So there's broader principles at play. And like I said earlier, I think really one of the theories I have is that I think that you can go a long ways with capital investment as opposed to operating expense investment in terms of necessarily growing headcount. I've always said from day one when I started this business, I will never consider the success of this business based on the headcount ever. Absolutely. And I think with Connect and Sell and certainly the marketing that they have, that's part of what I want to focus on is that leverage and Connect and right. Sell, what it's been able to do for you. And But you bring up an interesting point, and maybe this is a good segue too, because Chris, we have seen now with the economy on the uptick a little bit, and certainly the announcement from Apple, right, that they're requiring their folks in the office, what, Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday, I think it was. Kind of an odd amount of days, right? It's like, you why not just make it three concurrent days if you're going to do something. Maybe there's a method to that madness. But I they're got trying to get some gesture out. I don't know what it is. It's got to be something like that. Yeah. Um, but but certainly that's why I was leading into the commercial real estate is that as broadly lucrative. Chris and I have done a number of episodes, certainly on, especially when COVID first hit, about the need for my three-pound brain to be next to somebody's five-pound brain and what, within a six-foot <laughs> proximity? I think it is, and how critical that some employers still feel that that is. Correct, Chris? Yeah, I mean, I actually commented on the Apple thing. It's kind of funny. I just put a LinkedIn comment out there yesterday on what I think is, well, as I said, Apple will find themselves on the wrong side of history. And employers like ourselves are essentially, I will say with vis-a-vis -vis our employees are now ultimately no more powerful than we are vis-a-vis -vis our customers. It's the same game as employees have become full-on customers of the corporations they work for. Mm -hmm. And that sea change will not ever change. That is a, a done deal. It's been coming for a long time, but it needed a tsunami to wash the beach away and, and expose the bluff. And now it's a big step function. And the employees are up there on the top of the bluff and the employers are down on the beach wondering when the next tsunami is going to show up. So these statements of you got to be in the office beg the question of who you is and will it include their top 20%? And the answer is pretty simple, only if they want to. So 
top 20% used to do all sorts of things, make all sorts of compromises. Oh, we'll go live on Mercer Island because it has a great school system, blah, blah, blah. And it's close enough to Microsoft. Well, and it's close enough to Microsoft is no longer a relevant consideration. So now the question is, well, if you like Mercer Island, live there. And if you uh, like Quail Creek, Arizona, go live there. You know, it's like you can live wherever you want, work wherever you want if you're a top 20% knowledge worker today. And it makes the union movements of the late 1800s and early 1900s look like nothing in terms of power. Because the unions were always bustable mathematically. They had a, a serious problem, which is, you know, the workers needed the money. They needed to make that paycheck. And you can provide some insurance, strength in numbers kind of insurance, but you can't provide enough insurance to have them make another hand gesture to the employers and, and continue that with a lot of stare down power. There's issues. The stare down power of the modern top 20% employee in knowledge work is right now infinite. And it's infinite and growing, which is even more, more interesting. And all employers should, should take note. Now, one of the things we really like about, accidentally, by the way, about our own product is it makes it fun to work from home with family. So Cheryl Turner, who's been on this show, goes to the park with her three-year-old and they play on the swings while she talks to CEOs. That would be work-life balance in reality. That is work and life truly coming together synergistically to support each other without sacrifice of either. She is the best cold caller in the world talking to CEOs. And I bet she's a heck of a mom too, playing with her three-year-old, right? She can drive her child to her 11-year-old to school, but it's her work. Cheryl's, she's doing it while she's driving, talking to CEOs, right? So technologies, capabilities that make that easier are going to be a big deal. But the first thing is, man, these these executives running these companies got to get over themselves. I mean, they do not have the, the strength, to, the capacity, the staying power to tell their top 20% of their employees, screw you. I'm going to tell you where you're going to live. I'm going to tell you where you're going to spend your time going on the road, going back and forth to work. I'm going to tell you which days you have to be there because otherwise the whole thing doesn't happen. At least Apple's right on that. It has to be Monday, something, something. It can't be come whenever you want because the people, those other three pound brains won't be there. So that's idiotic, right? So they're at least trying, yeah. but what they're trying can't be accomplished. It, now, the, the other thing is for those who care, and this is a real estate thing here, the conference business and the real estate around conferences and around meeting each other somewhere nice, that business is going to go crazy. That business is going to see a renaissance that is unheard of in the history of hospitality. And it's because there's never been anything other than jet air travel in the history of hospitality that caused every place to be in place suddenly. We'll be back in a moment after a quick break. Connect and Sell, welcome to the end of dialing as you know it. Give your fingers a rest with Connect and Sell's patented technology. You'll load your best sales folks up with eight to ten times more live qualified conversations every single day. And when we say qualified, we're talking about really qualified, like knowing how many tears were shed while watching Titanic kind of qualified. And we're back with Corey and Chris. And this makes every place in play, because guess what? We already have jet air travel. 
Mm. So every nice place to get together is suddenly in play competing with those office campuses. And I can tell you who's going to win. The nice places you go just to be with people are going to beat the kind of funny place that had, as my mother would always say, that, that high school, is that a prison or a National Guard armory? That was what she'd always say. Like they make those buildings like they're one or the other. Look at the average corporate campus. They, it has those kind of qualities, right? Whereas the Four Seasons doesn't. The Rosewood, the Edgewater, these places are really, really nice. You want to go meet? Go meet there. Sure. So there's a, there's a dynamic that well, I've said before on the show, people are underbetting like crazy on the, on the work from home, work from anywhere, top 20% do whatever they want dynamic. That underbet right now, I would say, will turn out historically to have been at least off by a factor of five. Well, if you want to make money now, just, just pay attention to this. Ignore Henry. He does hard work, right? He has his brain and everything. He has to think. This is the thing you can do with no brains whatsoever. Well, Chris, it's, it's interesting that you're mentioning, and this has actually nothing to do with the fact that I'm in the commercial real estate space generally, or I should really say specifically. I think real estate is going to have a huge piece of this. And we all heard a million times that COVID accelerated trends that were already in place. This is clearly true here. I think in the case of commercial office space, to be clear, totally different from medical office space, if it's not mission critical, it's fungible, right? And what's really interesting is I think the time frame in which this dynamic, this employer-employee dynamic is going to play out in part, not in total, but a key variable is going to be the lost cost bias or sunk cost bias. And you, what you're going to see, I think, over time is as these very expensive office leases begin to expire and office leases in commercial space tend to run in larger markets, five to 10 years, maybe average it out to three to seven as a range. But the Jamie Diamonds of the world, these large CEOs, Tim Cooks, Apple, of course they own their facilities, so they're a little bit different. But at the end of the day, it's as these leases begin to expire, I think there'll be a little bit less pressure on the C-suite to force people to come in to an office just because they're paying rent on it. Mm -hmm. And I won't replow all the phenomenal points, Chris, that you've made, but I think really the, as you said, the top 20% is gonna really have, really the world is their oyster. And I think they're being able to largely be able to dictate over time, increasingly over time, partly because of the real estate dynamics, where they can work with increasing conviction. And as you've said here and elsewhere, I mean, if you think about just the tremendous amount of loss of time, and if there's one asset we know that we can never get back is time. I mean, we can get money back theoretically, and frequently you can. You can get other investments back, but you can never get time back. And I just have always been amazed that people are willing to sacrifice so much of their lives. Maybe they don't have a choice in many cases about the commutation that they take on every day. And that's something that's a really big expense, not just for the individual, but actually for their employer. And while it seems amazingly obvious, somehow it seems to be lost in a lot of the C-suite, at least in the larger corporations. It's kind of an institutional imperative in a different way. I alluded to that earlier in terms of the, the decision or not decision to essentially sell assets. It's it really the, the large scale kind of institutional imperative, the inertia is something that's going to have to kind of take place over a period of time now. So it's going to be it's going to be a very interesting gear shift over the next 18 to 24 months in terms of how this plays out. Well, isn't it fascinating that the tech stack, particularly what we what we've talked about a lot, connect and sell, reading signals from noise, parallels that same type of 
restriction or coming together of efficiencies that you have the top 20% team member now who can thumb his nose at his employer and now can do what Cheryl's doing at 20%, 50%, 100% higher than she was doing working for their employer by doing it now and I have the balance to do it with my child 15 feet away on the, on the jungle gym. Absolutely. Yeah, and it brings up another point, which is if employers have got to learn that their employees are, con- are customers, that means they have to play a different trust game than they're playing now. And one thing we haven't spoken of here that Henry, you said was a, a pivotal moment, a flip the pancake moment for you, was you went through the process of kind of finding this and that and eventually wandering into or you know being lured in or whatever to this market dominance guys th- thing. And I, you need to tell the story of the binge listening because you're the second person ever to do it that I know of. Yeah. And I. I sure hope anybody else who's so interesting that you binge listen to uh, Market Dominance, guys, please call Corey Frank at about 11 p.m. Pacific or uh, later because he's free then to talk to you. So you you had a a bit of a moment regarding this question that we've explored a lot, which is what do you lead with? Once you get past fear, what do you lead with, value or trust? And the tradition in sales is to lead with value, which is in the first part of a relationship, a failing proposition because the other party is not ready for value. That is trust precedes value. You can't listen to value cleanly because in order to listen to value, I have to be prepared to confess my problems and I do not confess to somebody I don't trust. So that's the little broken triangle that sales was built on for years and years and years. The idea being, well, you're not ever going to see me again anyway. So here's some value, right? That's it. That's what I call the tragedy of the crossroads. The sales were made at the crossroads. The caravaner is going one way. The the trader is at the crossroads. You're never going to see him again. The trader has superior knowledge of the goods. They sell you crap at the maximum price. The poor caravaner has got to get going before the snow starts flying in the mountains, right? So there's this old, that's, I'll call that the old sales dynamic. The modern sales dynamic is nobody gets away from anybody. Just like these employers, you can't get away from your employees because you're now made of employees. You used to be made of a bunch of bricks and steel and access to raw materials and all this stuff. It's like, I'm sorry, but now you're kind of made out of your employees. That is the actual structural material of your company. And if you don't trust them and they don't trust you, you got bricks, you ain't got no mortar. And it's a real serious, serious problem. And Henry, so tell the audience about this trust thing because you told me about your eye opening on that and it was it was surprising and delightful to me yeah well i I really have to credit to both of you really for for that kind of pivotal moment but i was i was way over indexing on i was obsessed with the idea of leading with value and again you've kind of heard me outline in schematic format how we've tried to really get super hyper granular with our very defined TAM. And part of the reason for that was, well, if we can really know who we're addressing, we can really kind of customize the data and the information and the sharing of knowledge on a very bespoke level. There's still real value in being able to do that. But the problem is you have a a counterparty at the other end of the phone who's not ready to listen to that. So you were front loading in your screenplay all the benefits and the of of your firm and all the cold cognitions 
of your stats and your yields. Is that what you're saying? Not exactly. It was definitely vectorially in that direction. It was more so, I would say, more data-driven. Okay. And not so much about us as a firm. In many ways, I probably, I'd say probably one of my faults is I probably try to templatize my, my impression of how people sell and usually do the inverse, which is kind of a simplistic way to look at it. But leading with trying to beat my chest about who I am or who Real Source Group is, I don't think is, a, frankly, any value to someone that's not familiar with us. That's what but, I wanted to understand from your perspective, because you asked different, five different folks in a firm, they lead with value. Some could lead with status as my value, mm-hmm. some could lead with longevity of my firm as value. So that's why I want to just kind of deconstruct that. We, led, we, we were data forward. If okay. anything, it was data forward. So it was a hyper-focus on data that was then very finitely aggregated into different components and then partitioned out to people that we thought that, that those particular data points would be most relevant to. I still think that that's of some aid, but as opposed to being the tip of the spear, when it really can't be received, the idea of leading with trust. I mean, I guess in some ways, I would almost say just talking about binge listening, I'm actually kind of taken back to the Orrin Claff episodes that you had. I mean, you could say that the cold call is the micro condition of the larger psychological play that Orrin Claff does in the pitch, sure. right? When you've got the, that you've got the disparity of the crocodile brain with the higher functioning of the brain, and clearly in the context of a cold call, that is a completely a defensive posture on the part of the recipient. So Absolutely. as Chris has out, outlined many, many times, the ability to pr- create trust by essentially alleviating the pain of who you are as the attacking entity, it's almost hard to kind of overstate the, well, speaking of value, there's value there. There's value in creating trust, but it's an entirely different dynamic. Today's show is also brought to you by UncommonPro.com. Selling a big idea to a skeptical customer or investor is one of the hardest jobs in business. So when it's really time to go big, you need an uncommon methodology to convince others that your ideas will truly change their world. Through a modern and innovative sales and scripting tool set, we offer a guiding hand to ambitious leaders in their quest to reach market dominance. It's time to get uncommon with UncommonPro.com. Never miss an episode. Go to any of your favorite podcast venues and search for Market Dominance Guys or go to marketdominanceguys.com and subscribe.